Welcome to the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, where we make sure your life will be changed for the better, one idea at a time. Rabbi Friedman is the number one voice of clarity on moral and social issues. So what are we waiting for? Let's go change the world. If you want to support It's Good to Know and the work of Rabbi Manus Friedman, please visit itsgoodtoknow.org forward slash support to join the community. This week in the Ideas That Change the World podcast, Rabbi Manus Friedman talks to Rabbi David Eliezri. So this morning we're talking about ideas that can change the world or that will change the world. So Rabbi Eliezri, what what have you done lately to change the world? I don't know what I've done lately to change the world, but um, I think we have to realize, first and foremost, that we have a mission to change the world. In other words, we have to transform it and transform it in a way that makes it a better place. It makes it a holier place, more imbued with sanctity. So the first part of the issue is, do we see life, which is something about us, or do we see life, which is something about a more noble mission? So it's not optional. We've got to change the world. We have to change the world, but we have to, so much of Western society tells us it's a very narcissistic society. It's about what we feel, what we think we need. You know, everybody, you know, gets whatever they want. They drive into McDonald's and within 30 seconds they have a meal. We're used to being satisfied. And I think what Judaism tells us is something very different, that we have to live a life which is we're trying to aspire to do things that transcend beyond ourselves. Sounds really good. Yeah, but the question is making it real. It's, it's, it sounds great on the philosophical level. The question is, is making life. It's, it's a question about how we look at our lives every single day. So what motivated you to write your book on Chabad? The reason I wrote the book, The Secret of Chabad, I felt that historians, and I mean two kinds of historians, the historians in the more religious end of the Jewish world and the historians more in the secular end of the Jewish world who see the Jewish world very differently, you know, one and each one, everybody has their own perspectives and historians are not objective. I felt that people misunderstood Chabad's role, what was driving it, what was motivating it, what was inspiring it. And initially I felt this need to set the historical record straight. Beyond that, it's an interesting process of self-reflection because when you look at yourself, you know, a lot of people write books about their own life experiences, but they tend to be very subjective. The question is, how do you step back and look at yourself and what you believe in and where you dedicated your life to with a sense of objectivity? And that's a much greater challenge. You know, they say victors write history. So the victors always see it to see it in their way, but to write it, write about your, your, the thing that you're engaged with yourself and to try to dig deeper and understand the real historical reasons and motivations and the trends, that's a harder thing to do and a more daunting task. So it's a little bit autobiographical? A little bit, auto, I think to some degree, autobiographical because I have to ask myself, why am I doing what I did? And I recall this moment that I was about to chuck the whole thing. I was a young Chabad Shliach here in California, sitting in a storefront with 11 people on a Shabbos morning and a, maybe a cholent with some good kitschka. And I didn't feel I was being effective in any way, shape, or form. And... I felt like I was, what am I doing here? Am I really making a difference? You know, at that point, nowadays Chabad is big and successful and got lots of programs and 
for rocking and rolling. In those days, you know, we were struggling for like relevance in the Jewish world. And I came to New York. It was the, a weekend of one of the early Shluchim conventions. And the numbers were still quite small. Now we get five and a half thousand people with glitz. In those days, we had 100 or 200, and it was simplistic. And um, the Rebbe made a talk on Shabbos afternoon that had a very big impact on my life. He contrasted the approach of Chabad to other Jewish organizations. And he said like this, I'm paraphrasing. He says, you know what happens? Jewish organizations, they get together, they first have a committee meeting, and they decide they found a problem. And they, they study the problem for a few months, and they figure, oh, this is really a big issue. we got to do something about it. So they create a task force. And the task force meets for about a year, and then they hire a consultant. The consultant does a research project for the, for, from the local university and comes out with a resolution. And three years later, they come back to the committee, and they say, listen, we should do this and this, and they begin to implement the suggestions. He says, in Chabad, a rabbi is sent to a community, and he's told to find a Jew and do with them a mitzvah. And he finds one Jew and he does with him a mitzvah. Then he finds another Jew and does with him a mitzvah. And then he, he looks for, fast forward 40 years, he looks back and he says, I changed the whole community. I suddenly realized that even though I was very frustrated and sitting in this tiny little storefront with very few people, barely food for Shabbos, wondering what am I doing here, that I had to get out and put the, feet, foot, the foot to the, the leather to the, to the road. How do you, what's the expression? And, and, to, and to get out there and to do what I had to do and automatically what would needed to be achieved would come with time. And that's what happened. So what does the book tell people that they need to know? I think what they need to know is first thing is they have to live life with a sense of mission, that what they're doing in this world is important. And it's, and it's, and it's changing the world. And not in the context which we've become, this new world word has been thrown around the Jewish world the last couple of years called Tikkun Olam, which really means, you know, I should vote for this party instead of that party, and I should become a political activist, and I should, you know, I, if I don't have single-payer medical care, so the world's going to come to an end, which single-payer medical care may have a value into itself, but it's not part of the mission of the Jewish people. And we replace planet. What? There is the part about saving the planet. We should save the planet, but we have to realize we can't replace spirituality and connection to God with the secular kind of social action. That social action may have value, but we can't say that certain political philosophies are an outgrowth of what Judaism is teaching. Judaism teaches us to live a life of higher purpose, to connect to God above. And so it takes a simple mitzvah of tzedakah, of compassion, of giving to others. So when you give money because, oh, I, people need help, so you have, Jewish law tells you, it's, you have, Baruch, thank God you were a little bit successful. You were given a trust from above, let's say, a certain amount of financial resources. And now the question is, what are you going to do about it? So from the point of view of the tikkun olam, I'll feel good when I help a poor person out. From the point of view of Judaism is I have a spiritual obligation to help that purpose out, person out. That's the reason I have the money. I'm doing it because God commanded me to have compassion on another person and, to, and, to, and alleviate his pain and suffering. So it's how we see the world. So I think the first point is, that we have to live our lives with a sense that we're here for a reason. We may not, part of the mystery of life is we don't exactly understand that reason. But if we look into the fabric of our lives and we, where the divine providence orchestrates that we should be, then we have to ask ourselves why we're there. I think you're onto something. I, I was listening this year to the commencement speeches 
uh, five or six different universities, different uh, speakers. And unlike previous years, where every graduate student was encouraged to become all they can be and to succeed and to make use of their uh, knowledge for their own benefit, this year, every speaker said, go out there and make the world better. Something is switching, something is moving in the right direction. That maybe was the Rebbe's message, that you cannot be a private citizen. No, we have to have a sense of, a broader sense of obligation. And, our, you know, you, you, you saw this in particular with the Rebbe's approach to Jewish communal leadership. You know, there's an attitude, I served my time, I did, t took care of my community, and now I'm going to retire and I'm going to move on to, uh, to, a, to another place and to take it easy. And repeatedly, when people were in positions of communal leadership, and they would tell the rabbi, listen, I'd like to move to Jerusalem. You know, I'll hang out with my old friends from yeshiva. I'll learn, I'll study a little bit every day. I'll write an occasional article in the newspaper. And I'll be able to go and buy all the kosher food I want, because down the block from my house, you can't get that you know, 13 kinds of cream cheese that exists in the, bar, in the supermarket in Jerusalem. You'd say, no, now you're a senior statesman in the community. You have the power of you have the power of moral responsibility and communal leadership. People looking up to you, don't abdicate your position. Maybe you should reformat it, but you have a sense of if you're in a certain place, that's your mission. You've got to fulfill that purpose of being there. I've been thinking about retiring. But uh, retiring, uh, listen, you got a few good years yet. You're still on the road, Manus. You're still rocking and rolling. You're still moving around. And I think that when you, you know, I think when you come to a place, you have to ask yourself a question. I've been asking myself this question every time I come to a community to speak. Is this, this book business put me on the speaking tour a little, on the so-called Chabad speaking circuit. I mean, I hit Bangor, Maine about two weeks ago, which is, I guess, once you get to Bangor, you've been everywhere. Um, interesting small Jewish community in Bangor, Maine. Something really, in a sense, remarkable, and it's such a small place, still a kernel of Judaism in a very, you know, with a sense of passion, that you have to ask yourself when you come someplace, why are you here? What are you doing here? What's the purpose of you being here? Just to go to another city and town? And or what's, what, why has God orchestrated the divine providence to bring you to this location? And what can you achieve in this place? And the answer is? I think you've got to look for that reason, and you're going to find it. There's somebody that you can touch in a way that nobody else can. There's something in this community that can be different, that you have that. There's a saying in Yiddish, a guest for a vile, zeta mile, a person who comes for a short period, sees, you know, much bigger. He has a more kind of objective view, and he has a broader view of what's going on in the community. And maybe you can make a suggestion, or you can do something, which will, in some sense, make that place a little bit better. And sometimes you'll never know. And sometimes you never know the impact of, uh, I mean, I had a story that happened to me about six, seven years ago. I give a class once a month at a local hospital for doctors. Where is this? In UCI Medical Center in, University, in, in Orange, California. So it's a monthly luncheon, a lunch and learn. And um, I started the class. I had a son who was ill and he was in the hospital. And I told the head of the hospital at the time that, 
my spiritual rectification start a class in the hospital, and that class is going on already for about 11, 12 years. I come once a month. So about six, seven years ago, I, I'm in the class, I'm teaching the class, and a guy walks in, dressed in greens, and he's wearing a yarmulke. This class is for doctors? Yeah, it's for doctors, nurses, and staff of the hospital. So it's those three groups of people. It's doctors, nurses, and, and medical staff, you know, so people who work there. And it's an interesting mix of people, very intelligent, very bright. And maybe they're coming for the pastrami, not for me, but they're, they're there nevertheless. And I get a good lunch once a month, so I know it's worth going to. it. So a guy walks in, you know, with the greens of a doctor, and he's wearing a yarmulke. Now, let's, this is not Brooklyn. This is not Manhattan. This is not even Los Angeles. This is Orange County, California. You may see Jewish doctors, but no, none of them wear yarmulkes. So I say to this guy, who are you? And he says to me, you don't remember me? I said, no. He says, you don't remember what you told me? I said, no. He says, well, you told, you, I came to this class for the last year or two. He was, at this point, he also had a little bit of a beard, so he was, he was looking a little bit more, you know, say, religious, ultra. And he says to me, you said something very interesting in the class. You said, in college, they teach you how to make a living. In university, they teach you how to make a living. In yeshiva, they teach you how to live. But because of that, I decided to take a semester off, and I went to Jerusalem. I studied in the yeshiva Mayanot, and I'm back. And remarkably, just two, three weeks ago, we were together at the National Jewish Retreat in Providence, Rhode Island. Or strangely, you came late, and I replaced you for a couple of classes. But, and I meet Friday night, I meet this guy. He's now got the whole regalia, his wife and kids, and his father-in-law. And because I said one line that struck him, it transformed his life. And I didn't know that it had such an impact on him until almost a year after I said it. But now you do know. Now I know. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Did you just write an article for the Jerusalem Post? Yeah, I wrote a piece in the Post about the so-called crisis, which people are saying is going on between, quote-unquote, diaspora Jewry and Israel, which I think is a little bit overblown and misunderstood, and uh, the so-called growing division between Jews in America and Jews in Israel, which I think is uh, it's an important issue, and we need to analyze the real reasons behind it. And what is the real reason? Well, it, liberal Jewish leaders are saying, you know, they have a certain degree of angst because their, their numbers in Israel are very, very small. I mean, I would tell you that probably two-tenths of one percent are members of Reform and Conservative congregations. And they haven't succeeded in pursuing their agenda in Israel because they just don't, they don't have the, the support of the public. Today in Israel, it's a very interesting place today, Israeli society, very misunderstood by American Jews. Thirty percent of the population is religiously observant. Another thirty percent is what we would call traditional, which means I keep, you know, that they keep kosher. But if they go to Vegas, they might eat a little fish at the, at the, at the, at the buffet. And another 30% or so, a third is probably secular. So the population is either majority religious or traditional. Friday night, I, I have a meal with my family, and Shabbos afternoon, I go to the beach. Or I wear a yarmulke. It, it, the whole Israeli society has changed. It's a much more observant society. And also, what's so interesting about Israeli society is that Judaism is interwoven into the very fabric of what's going on in Jewish life. And what I mentioned in the article was something that I had noticed. I had seen this video on YouTube. 
There's an Israeli political satire show on Saturday nights in Israel called Gav Auma, which means on the shoulders of the nation. I don't know, it's probably top in the top in the ratings, and they get the biggest, you know, top political leaders. So, I mean, they've even hosted the prime minister and the, the minister, all the different government ministers. And, and there's four people on the panel who are all leftists and the government is right wing. And it's hilarious to watch the tension and they're very sharp. But I had watched the show. I'd watched one of these shows on YouTube with one of the religious members of the Knesset. And what is the argument on the, on the show? Why is there no mezuzah on the doorway into the stage? And are we going to build the third temple? Is Mashiach coming or not? American Jews don't talk about mezuzahs on their doors. And if they're building them, you know, and then you look at a show like in Israel, they have a version of The Voice. So you got some Hasidic Jew singing, belting out old classic memories, old classic melodies like your brother Avram Fried, competing against some aspiring kind of Israeli rock star who's, you know, wants to be the new version of The Beatles. So suddenly, so into, into society, even in the element which is less observant, Judaism is such woven in such a profound way and there's so much interaction between secular and religious and so many more Jews are somewhat observant when it comes to a Jewish holiday it's just part of life even if you're not fully observant okay your neighbor has a sukkah so you go to the sukkah it's Yom Kippur you don't dare drive you might want to ride a bicycle the airplane the airport is closed an American society where Jews are assimilating so fast so we have this tremendous contrast so liberal Jewish leaders have been arguing that it's the policies of the state of Israel that are turning off American Jews. And if it was, Israel was not such a religious society, it wasn't such a right-wing society, they just, they just created a couple of weeks ago, which I think the Baha'u'llah about it is absolutely stupid, a nation-state bill, which basically says Israel is a Jewish state, the language is Hebrew, Arabic has a special consideration, we believe in Jewish holidays, Jews should live in the country, and we should live happily ever after. So the liberal Jewish leadership in America has gone wacko on this issue, saying, wow, you're not gonna protect the rights of minorities, even though there are other basic laws which do protect the rights of minorities, which is important in a democracy. So their argument has been that these elements and the lack of religious pluralism in Israel, as like they call it, is turning off American Jews. And my argument is American Jews don't really care about these issues because they're assimilating so fast that it's not on their radar. That's, that's true. But it's also true that that we worship democracy like a religion. And when the democracy in Israel clashes with the Jewish nature of Israel, it makes people really uncomfortable beyond, you know, beyond the, the usual news. But there's something else. When the democracy in Israel, when the democracy in Israel says the preeminent value is Judaism, and the, and the Jew who is at more of a secular bent doesn't want that to be the democracy, then he laments the death of democracy. But really, what's going on in Israel today is, a, is, is as the population is more traditional and more observant, democracy is saying that Jewish values have a, more, a great importance to us in Israel. Because what this real nation-state bill was about was about a conflict between the Israeli Supreme Court and the bulk of society. And the Israeli Supreme Court is a very interesting, it's very different than the American Supreme Court. Many of us make decisions about who we vote for for president based on who we think they're gonna to choose to be justices in the Supreme Court. Those on the more the democratic end will vote for a democratic person for president, and those on the more Republican 
vote for a Republican. And a lot of that consideration for us as Americans is that the president has the power to appoint justices to the Supreme Court. In Israel, it doesn't happen that way. There's a committee of nine people, including three existing members of the Supreme Court, that quietly selects who's going to be the judges. So you have a problem, a process of self-selection of a liberal elite. And historically, the court has ruled always into a, to a significant degree, even though the court does have very admirable rulings, against religious tradition. So the nation-state bill was a message to the court, hey, guys, if there's a conflict between so-called what you see democracy is and Judaism, Judaism's value is very important, and you've got to start weighing that. And so when people in America or people on the left end of the political spectrum <laughs> are losing because of democracy, they're claiming it's the death of democracy. And the truth is that their ideas are competing in democracy, and they're not succeeding in getting the support of the majority of the public. It can be confusing to people. It can be very confusing. So here, I think that your book, and uh, I understand you're writing another one? Yeah, we're starting a new project now called The 50 Top Questions on Judaism. It should be out in about a year with a bit of luck. It's going to be... Uh, from perspective? From the perspective of, number one, historical, from a traditionalist perspective. And also, I hope to interlace the book with uh, a sense of personal anecdotes about how these questions relate to our lives today. Because we, you know, uh, you know there's something, there's abstract philosophy and theology, which is important. But we need to translate these, the big ideas of Judaism to our own personal reality, and they need to have a sense of relevance to who we are. So I'm going to attempt to balance all of that. I may succeed, I may fail. I'm just starting on the adventure of writing which is a very difficult and solitary kind of adventure. You have to lock yourself in a room, ignore the world, and work very hard. And you have to try to mesh it all together. And sometimes, it, you know, sometimes, sometimes you're, you're lucky and things come out good. So sometimes, and sometimes you know, you're not so lucky. You know, the, the process of writing... The whole thing, you want to tear it all up. And, I know. You tear it all up. It's like in my first book, I wrote a chapter, and I had a very dear friend of mine, my Joseph Loshak, who was a senior shliach in, in Santa Barbara, who tragically we lost him just three years ago when he was a dear friend of mine. And he used to criticize my writing. So one day I sent him this chapter I'd written. He says, this is not up to your usually high standards. A nice way of saying, boy, this is baloney. You've got to rewrite the whole chapter. So this creative process is a very uh, challenging process because you have to reach within yourself. and You have to find a way of expressing an idea in a way where another person will want to spend the time, his valuable time, reading your ideas because they bring some value to him. Because you have to treat your reader with respect. And, that's not, and so therefore, it's not just about what you feel you want to write. It's also what you want to see, the re that the reader should see some kind of value in what you write. Well, the value of your book is certainly going to contribute, is that it's going to contribute to this um, renewed or rediscovered pride, not only in being Jewish, but in Judaism. Because I think the Six-Day War did a, a, a fantastic job in restoring Jewish pride. After, you know, after all our history, and particularly after the Holocaust, people were ashamed to be Jewish. They were changing their names. They were changing their noses. <laughs> they were denying they were Jewish. The Six-Day War was so healing. It was such a cathartic um, process. 
where we don't hide being Jewish. We're not ashamed to be Jewish. We're very proud of being Jewish. We just haven't gotten around to being proud of our Judaism. Yeah, but I think the problems are very different today. The Jew during the six, in the period of the Six Day War had a strong sense of identity about being a Jew, but a fear of asserting that identity. And a lot of it was because there was such, so much anti-Semitism in this country. So, I mean, even in the United States, if you look before World War II, which was just 20 some odd years before the Six Day War, I mean, the mo one of the most popular radio stations in this country was a show by an anti-Semitic priest, I think Father McLaughlin, his name was McLaughlin, in Detroit, and he was one of the top rated radio shows in the country. And anti-Semitism was a dominant value in the society. And then we had the issue of the Holocaust. And for generations, the attitude of the Jew was to get along by, being, by subduing themselves a little bit. I'm not going to be too Jewish because I'll get noticed. And so I have to quietly, you know, sit on the side. But what happened was the Six-Day War was like when the Green Bay Packers won the Super Bowl, that my little town, Green Bay, Wisconsin, could fight the big Los Angeles and the New York Patriots and the Boston Patriots, whatever it's called. And they could win. Wow, I feel good. You know, it's, I got one for the Gipper, as they would say. But... So suddenly that Jew felt a sense of pride. You know, it, 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 they felt a sense of pride. I, you know, it's like I saw the, this clip of when Israel flew, you know, fighter jets over Auschwitz. And then they were supposed to fly at a high altitude and they dipped down, even though they weren't supposed to. They flew right over Auschwitz. So every Jew felt, ah, you know what? You tried to kill us and here we got fighter jets nowadays. Don't mess around with the Jews anymore. But today I find a very different kind of problem. The Jew doesn't feel oppressed. Anti-Semitism is a distant memory. That outside pressure that's pushing Jews inward is not there in America today. You can do whatever you want. You can be a religious Jew and run for vice president of the United States, Joe Lieberman, and nobody cares you're religious. They care. Do they like Joe Lieberman or they don't like Joe Lieberman? You could be the chief of staff in the White House, Jack Lew, or secretary of treasury in the last administration. And you could be an Orthodox Jew and nobody cares. You either like his policies or you don't like his policies. It could be you like Lieberman and you don't like Lou or you like Lou. But the Judaism element, anti-Semitism, has been to a large degree pulled out of American society. I don't mean it isn't there on a latent way. It probably is to some degree. But the average American Jew today does not feel a sense of oppression. And the second thing, the average American Jew doesn't see a campaign. There's no Soviet Jewry that's being enslaved. There's no Israel. Israel today is not a vulnerable country. It's got F-35s and nuclear bombs and a booming economy and one of the highest satisfaction rates where people live around the world. I mean, you come to Tel Aviv, it's hard to buy an apartment. It's so expensive. It's not a Nebuch third world. You know, my mother-in-law, my father, my mother-in-law uh, married her first cousin, went to Israel in the mid-50s, and they lived in a, in a time of rationing. And they eventually, it was a very difficult time to live in Israel. And now who rations? The, the restaurants are open to 5 o'clock in the morning. So Jews today are much more, you know, it, Judaism is just not, not important. It's not so relevant to them. So the, they don't feel that they need that sense of pride because they don't feel that sense of insecurity. So we're dealing now with a fundamental different change. And the only way a Jew is going to feel a sense of pride today is if there's going to be a sense of relevance of Judaism in their lives. 
it's going to relate to who they are. And also living in a time where many young people feel that it's about what I feel. It's all about what I feel. So if they don't feel something about Judaism, it's not important. to me. And they don't have a grandmother who's calling them up and say, Yankala, why didn't you go to Shul on Yom Kippur? Because the grandmother is not called Bubby anymore. And she's not keeping kosher. And she might have been in Vegas, who for who or we know, for the weekend. So I think we're fine. I think the battle for Judaism now is a battle about relevance. It's not a battle about feeling proud. It's about, about why does this bring value to my life? And that really, when it comes to Torah, Torah does give value to life. That is the true form of pride or dignity. Not that there's something special about me, but there is something special about the life we are meant to live and the message that we are meant to spread. So I, it's amazing that, like you say, Israel became this powerful thing. We're so proud of it, of, of its technology, uh, of its military, of its brain power, all of those things. And we discovered that's not what we are. That's not what we are really proud of. But so there's something else also. The next step. What about the pride in the mitzvah? What about the pride and the wisdom of Torah, the wisdom of our sages? It's a gift to the world. That world wants to hear it, as I'm sure you've discovered. I, uh, well, it, there's two things here. Number one, I think that the criticism from some American Jews of Israel is also they're un, so insecure about their own Jewish identity. It's just not important to them, and they don't want to be, they don't want Judaism so much in their face. But when you have a state where Judaism is in your face, which is so much in Israel, that bothers that assimilated Jew in America. On the flip side, because we all have to focus now on Torah's ideas and Torah's wisdom, when you, when you take a, a, a critical look at Torah and you look at its wisdom, you see that these are ideas that really enrich your own life and give you a sense of purpose. Because we're, we're struggling in a society which is a lot about feelings and a, lot of, a certain sense of aimlessness, wondering why we are here, and I think we have here a remarkable opportunity because today people are o o open to the wisdom and the relevance of how this relates to my life. And Judaism is not just about bagels and locks and about feeling something, or it's not like the insecurities of the Jews of the 60s that they were all worried about, what is the guy, if I can get into the country club or, or will my kid be accepted to Yale or Harvard? Today, the kids accepted to Yale or Harvard and you can get into the country club. The question is, does Judaism's wisdom bring meaning and purpose into what I am doing every single day. And for us as rabbis, I think this is a remarkable moment. Because if we, they say, there's a saying in Yiddish, Torah is the best, the, best, the best product that you can sell is Torah. So if we, when we go out to teach, I'm finding an openness to the ideas of Torah that I didn't find and when I started this, you know, as a Chabad Shliach over 40 years ago, and now you, you, you started a few years before me, I don't know if you share those sentiments or not. There's definitely something exciting going on. And I think what it comes down to is, if we don't have the answer, then there is no answer. Well, I don't think it's your answer and my answer. I think it's the wisdom of Torah's answer. That's what I mean. If Judaism is not the answer, then there is no answer because we've tried everything else. So I think the world is really ready, amazingly ready. And that's why if you can put out another book, the sooner the better. <laughs> People are literally hungering, not just interested and curious. 
It could be, it could be life-saving, certainly life-changing. We'll make an effort, and hopefully it'll get done soon. I mean, writing is a, it's a, it's a very, as I mentioned before, a solitary kind of adventure, and you've got to really focus and have a lot of self-discipline. Do it. Uh, I'm going to make the effort. Look, this is your topic. It, you know, it flows naturally in, in speech. You've got to translate it into, into paper. It's... We'll see how well it comes out. You know, it, <laughs> okay. We need it badly. Oh, we need it goodly. <laughs> and we should have a good year. We shall have. We'll have a good year. Should be a sweet year, as the Rebbe would always say. A good year, every year is good, because having a year is already good. Not having a year is not so good. <laughs> so if we have a year, that's good. But what we need to hope for and look forward to is that the year should be a sweet goodness. And I think we should seize the goodness. We should seize that opportunity of the year and turn it to a year filled with purpose and filled with goodness and filled with the, with the light of Torah and hopefully brightening the world just a little bit. Let's tell the world how sweet it is. Well, I, I want to just finish off with one thing. I, I, your, your son, Benny, made this beautiful song that I heard last week um, uh, about what the Rebbe told you when you went into a private meeting before you got married, if I'm correct, that if you'll warm up the world, what was the exact wording? Spread warmth and light around you, and God will provide warmth and light for you. I think it's a very profound statement. If we spread warmth and light to others, we'll see the warmth and light in our lives. If we live a life of meaning and purpose, we try to bring meaning and purpose with other people, it'll bring meaning and purpose into our lives. I can drink to that. Okay. L'chaim. <laughs> Thank you very much. If you want to support It's Good to Know in the work of Rabbi Manus Friedman, please visit itsgoodtoknow.org forward slash support to join the community. This is the Ideas That Change the World podcast with Rabbi Manus Friedman, changing your life for the better, one idea at a time. Like it, share it, and leave us a review. Tune in next week for more ideas that change the world. Change the world.